I have good news. We're finishing Acts chapter 2 today. Though there's plenty more that we could dig down into, we are planning to finish this chapter this morning. We're looking at the spirits moving in the hearts and lives of these believers who make up the early church. Luke says towards the end of the chapter that we looked at last week, that there were some specific things that these Christians did together a lot. In fact, he uses the word that they were devoted to these things, continually devoted. They made a habit of doing these things. And you can scan back in the last few verses of chapter 2, verse 42. You can see there that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. And this wasn't just a one and done thing. This wasn't just a big conference that was held in Jerusalem where they did this and then they all went home and went about their lives. This was not, this was normal life now. This was a lifestyle change. And really, if you think about it, if you consider, uh, People that you remember from scripture, Paul just jumps to my mind, formerly Saul. When his life was impacted by Jesus, it was totally different, wasn't it? We read a, a passage um, this morning where it talks about how he, he was um, just totally new. He was totally changed. He was the, or there was this morning, Kathy read, he said, I'm the, the chief of sinners, He had that background, but when Jesus came and knocked him off that horse and blinded him for a few days, his life was never the same. Now, it may not be quite so dramatic in the book of Acts chapter 2, but we still see a lifestyle change in these Christians. They loved gathering together to study God's word. They loved gathering together because Jesus was what united them. They loved gathering together to remember him. And celebrate him in in the fellowship and in breaking of bread. And they loved gathering together with the church body to pray. These were parts of their lifestyle now. And these things were seen as signs of life in the early church. And so as we've talked last week and we talk today, I, I want us to think through these signs of life for ourselves. I think that's an appropriate application of these things. You could look back at that list and say, man, do I like getting together for Bible study? Or is it just not worth my time? Do I like getting together to pray with my brothers and sisters? To break bread over a meal or through communion like we'll do this morning? Do I like gathering together because I know it's what G- it's, it's Jesus who unites us? Or can we not be bothered with those things? Because see, if those things aren't evident in our lives, if we're not devoted to them as these early Christians were, then it's possible that there's not signs of life in us. Now, incredible things are happening in chapter 2. We're told very briefly that incredible signs and wonders, all of these things, we're not told right here exactly what they are. We're going to get into some of them in the next few chapters. But crazy things, as far as earthly sense, were going on. Lots of stuff was happening, but what was the purpose of it all? Well, we saw what resulted in kids. How many people were saved that day at Pentecost? Kids? 3,000. Paul Yates, you're not a kid anymore, buddy. I love you, but you can't answer that. 3,000 people 
Yes, thank you. 3,000 people are saved. Something big is happening in Jerusalem. And this is an evidence of it. And the signs and the wonders that are being performed and happening, they give credence to that. They show that this is real and this is true and these apostles who are preaching ought to be listened to. It brought the body of Christ closer together. When the body dwells in unity, that's what happens. And when the body dwells in unity, we demonstrate Christ to the world. That's the beauty. And that's kind of what we look at in the text this morning. We see, okay, these incredible things have happened. What's the result? That's it. We want to look at that in verses 45 through 47. Let's read these things together and then we'll pray and continue on. Chapter 2, verse 45. And they, that's the church, the early believers, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, we expect that you're going to do incredible things. We don't expect it to look just like it did here in Acts chapter 2. But we expect that if the church grows, it's because of you. It's because of your word being preached faithfully. Not any design of man, but exactly what happened here in Acts chapter 2. And Lord, you added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I don't know those people right now, Lord, but you do. And so I pray that the message this morning, the words that we've read, the words that will be spoken, help us to understand our place, help us understand your goodness and justice, and help us live a lifestyle of godliness in the world around us. Help us not only to do that individually, but Lord, as a church, help us to do this well. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to look back for a minute at the text. You can go all the way back to verse 42 and through our our verses through the end of the chapter and just kind of scan it and look for similar words or, in fact, look for the same word. There's one particular word. That's repeated over and over, and here's a clue, it's at the beginning of the verse, usually. Okay, have you, have you noticed it? It's a short word, it's a joining word, it's the word and. Look back, I mean, almost, almost in every, every verse, every phrase that we see, they, this connects everything, and they were doing this, and they were doing that, and they were doing this other thing, and they were gathered together, and you see where I'm going with this? See where the, Luke is going with this? If the early church is to be an example for us at all, we have to see that they were an active group of people. They, they were doing stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times of calm and rest and refreshing that the scripture calls Christians to. God set the tone for this right at the beginning, resting on the seventh day after creating six. Okay, so I'm not saying that 
we should just do things all the time. There has to be moments and periods of rest, but perhaps the largest part of being a Christian is actively living life within the context of the church. And this text helps us to see what that kind of looks like. Again, I'm not talking about just filling up the church calendar with stuff. That's, that's not what I mean by doing that they were active and doing things. I mean being intentional about faithfully doing the things that God calls us to and demonstrating Christ to the world and how we love one another, and how we work in unity together. Look back at the text with me. And all who believed they were together, it says they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, they were attending the temple together and they were breaking bread in their homes and they were praising God and having favor with all people and the Lord added to their number. Those who are being saved. This, I, I hope, is a encouraging reminder that those in the body of Christ truly love one another. Can you come to any other conclusion when you read these verses, especially 45 through 47, but that these people really cared about one another? Now, if you scroll through Facebook or you look at any news sites, printed or digital, you're going to see that most media sites, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, they latch on to all the negative things that come out of the Christian realm, right? Unfortunately, they don't have to look very hard. We've got pastors who are lying about their job descriptions. We've got pastors who are plagiarizing sermons. We've got pastors who are falling to temptation and adultery. We've got all of these things that happen. There's no shortage of crummy headlines. It's true. It shouldn't be that way. But the negative stories seem to always get the most attention, right? The fact is, I think we could fill dozens and dozens and dozens of newspapers with the good stories that come out of what it means to be a Christian. Think about your own experience. How many of you have received a letter, phone call, text message, or a visit from someone in the church that seemed to come at just the right time? How many of you have received a meal from a church member when you're going through a difficult time or maybe the birth of a new child or something like that? How many of you guys have been the recipient of an anonymous financial gift in the church? How many of you have had your grass cut or a tree trimmed or a roof patched or your hot water heater fixed by a church member? How many of you had, have had deep and convicting conversations regarding what's going on in your own heart and life? How many of you have been encouraged and strengthened by a church member when you've lost someone that you loved? Now, I could go on and on. And hopefully you can identify with some of these things. Because I, I think what we're seeing in Acts chapter 2 up to this point is really foundational for what we're going to see in Acts chapter 3 through the end of the, the book. I, and there's, that's one of the reasons why we've spent so many weeks on this chapter. It's because there's so much here 
for us to understand. Look at verse 45 again. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Again, this is not, I mentioned this last week, this is not a communist or socialist kind of a structure here. That's not what's going on. The leaders aren't demanding that people bring in their stuff and give them the money. Um, if you think forward to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, the leaders weren't saying you have to bring these things in. The judgment of God fell on them because they lied about what they were doing, not because they didn't bring enough. Uh, we find evidence all throughout the book of Acts that Christians still owned personal property, owned houses that oftentimes the church and Christians would gather in. So it's not like everything belonged to the church. It's not a socialist or communist setup here. Instead, what we see is there, this kind of voluntary generosity that is commendable and commended. Their giving was voluntary and motivated from love, not pressure from the leaders. See, what I think we're seeing here in Acts chapter 2 is really the opposite of your normal reaction to things. Let me just explain. Um. Kids especially demonstrate this well, but if you're, if you've got a group of kids playing and a kid brings in a new toy, you see where I'm going with this, all those kids who did not have that toy want that toy. And oftentimes they will take that toy by force if necessary. You've been there. We understand this. Adults, we do it in maybe a little more quiet way at times, maybe not sometimes. But that's our normal inclination. Our normal inclination is to say, man, you've got something that I want, and we either are jealous of it, which is a sin, or we take it from them and steal it, which is a sin. But what we see here is the opposite of those things. We want to keep what's good for ourselves, but what do they, what do, they do here? They give it away. They sell it. They take what they have and they give it to somebody else. That's radical generosity that goes against our nature. They valued their brothers and sisters in Christ more than they valued their stuff. In essence, they were saying, you know what? If I can serve our church family by giving this up, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to serve. And that list of examples that I gave earlier, hopefully you've experienced people with that attitude here in our church in our community, who've said, if it can help somebody, I'm happy to do it. Now, it makes sense for these Christians to behave this way because they were just following the blueprint that Jesus had left them. And I'll put us there too. It makes sense for Christians, you and I, to behave this way if we're following the blueprint that Jesus left us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says that even though Jesus was rich, those are his words. Even though Jesus was rich, he became poor for our sakes so that by his poverty, we might become rich. Now, that's a pretty incredible statement when you pair it with what's going on here in Acts chapter chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and his sacrificial love set the tone for the church. Notice I said sacrificial love. Kingdom of God does this kind of thing though, doesn't it? When, when someone understands 
who they are and understands God's grace for them in Christ Jesus, it, it flips what's natural on its head. Jesus' ministry was so much about this. Think back to what he said. He said things like, love your enemies. Well, how, how often should I forgive my brother? A bunch. 70, 70 times, 70 times, 7, whatever you want, number you want to put there, it's more than probably any of us have done. Jesus is saying, forgive. Love your enemies. He says, pray for those who persecute you. He says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. These things were not normal. They went, they went contrary to our natural inclinations and nature. And this sort of thing really confused the disciples for quite a while. Maybe even up until Jesus' ascension. But I think now they're getting it in Acts chapter 2. I think they've got it here. The spirits come. Many signs and wonders are proving what's going on is real and from God. But I think what's going on here, I think this intense and sacrificial love and generosity is crucial for them to understand. Because a solid base of relationships and care is what the church needs to accomplish the Great Commission. The kind of genuine and sacrificial love that these Christians had for one another was the launching pad for Christian mission. So let me tie that together. These Christians, they knew that loved and trusted, loving and trusted friends, spiritual brothers and sisters had their backs. They knew that their needs would be met and provided for. And so this fueled their resolve and their passion for taking the gospel message of a resurrected Savior to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and out to the ends of the earth. And this foundation of sacrificial love in the church is what was a springboard for Christian mission. This was the base of it. Think of it this way. We sing songs and it's been said that Jesus Christ is like the fount of living water. And if that's true, Christians, can we can almost be like little faucets. Sort of like in your house, you've got one main line coming from, you know, your water, main water source. Well, then you've got all these little faucets in the house. Christians are like little faucets that the love of Christ passes through. And so we can ask ourselves in light of this text, maybe a, a tough question. Have I turned the knob shut on my church family? Does his love flow through me in sacrificial ways? I think these are hard questions, but I think they're necessary questions when we read about what, what's going on in the church in, in these verses. Notice that the end of verse 45 qualifies some of this. It gives some explanation. They weren't just selling property and then just tossing money out. It says that they gave as any had need. So that's how it was being distributed. It wasn't so that the apostles could line their pockets with money. It was, it was sold, it was given, and given out then as any people had need. Because God had been generous with them. These early Christians knew and were determined to be generous with one another. That's how we do it. Christ, in teaching the disciples to pray, said this sort of thing. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, who, who are our debtors, who hurt us. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We're generous because God has been generous with us. I, I, I said this last week, but I think it bears repeating. I don't think that we should be 
stubborn and unyielding in this kind of thing and say that every church member today has to go home and sell all of your property and give it to the church. That's not what we're saying here. There's actually not much evidence after chapter 5 of Acts that this sort of thing happened. Instead, Christians are told, give to the needs of others. Specifically, if somebody's going out on a missionary journey, give to them. Take care of those who are preaching in your church. It's also possible that it happened like this, specifically here in Jerusalem in Acts two through, Acts chapter two through five, because just there's huge amounts of people adding, being added to the church, right? Three thousand in a day, day by day. It says in our text today in verse forty-seven, the Lord is adding to the church. And we don't have a total number here, but it's probably a bunch. And so there was extra funds needed for people to eat and to stay and to live together. So we're not asking you to, to go sell your property and bring it to the church. That's not what we're asking. But instead, what if we each gave out of what God has given us? Even if we might think that it's a very small amount to us, what if we just gave what God's calling us to be faithful to give we got to believe that that's going to be enough, don't we? Don't we believe that? I hope that we will. I hope that we do. Because if our study in the treasure principle years ago taught us anything, it's that God's after our hearts more than anything. More than your checkbook, more than your bank account, he's after your heart. But those things are proof of where your heart is. And certainly I, could, I think we could make that claim here in Acts chapter 2. As well, you could tell that the spirit was moving amongst these Christians because of how they sacrificially loved their brothers and sisters. It was evidence. It was proof. Now you'll recall probably the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. Rich guy had all the, the monetary means to do whatever he probably wanted in life. And he comes to Jesus. And he says, hey, what do I have to do to follow you? You remember the story. Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, is that binding for every believer today? That if you want to follow Jesus, you have to sell everything you own and give it to the poor. Well, Jesus also told people to forsake their fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and everything else if they want to follow him. So what's Jesus getting at here? When he looked at the the rich young ruler, he knew... He was wealthy, and he knew that was what his biggest problem was. And he cut straight to the heart of it, and he says, if you want to follow me, you have to give up everything that's most precious to you. Unfortunately, we probably know the story, too, that this young man went away with his face down because he couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. But just like you, or just like him, you and I, Hear the same thing from Jesus. When we come to him, he says, Rod, you got to give up what's most precious to follow me. Put your name there. He's saying the same thing to you. Whatever you think you have to hold on to, that you value more than me, you're going to have to give it up to follow. So if you don't, well, you can't be his disciple. Now, maybe a more important thing to notice in this text is the, is the fact that the church, the, the believers there, were sensitive to and aware of the needs of those around them. And this is maybe something that we 
we lack in our culture. Because when we come to church and we say hi to one another, you guys know how it generally goes. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Well, I didn't even listen to ask for a response from my question, how you doing? And most of the time when we offer a response, it's, I'm doing okay, I'm doing good. And then that may be true. And yet, I think we could be better about hearing and being aware of the needs within our own church, within our own loved ones. I'm not saying we're doing a poor job in this, but we could always be better. Are we aware of these needs? Are we making these things aware to our brothers and sisters? I imagine that as these Christians were getting together, and remember the things that they were doing, right? They were reading scripture, listening to preaching. They were breaking bread and having the Lord's Supper. They were praying together. I imagine as they were gathering together to do these things, that conversations generally turn to personal things. Like, hey, how's your mom doing? I know she wasn't feeling well. She's got some sickness. Is she getting better? How can I be praying for you? Or in, in Bible days, say, hey, I heard you lost your fishing job. You know, may, I heard about a, a blacksmith that needs an apprentice across town. You know, un, until, you're, until you're back on your feet, our family, our family wants to help you with whatever needs you might have. Right, you can see how that would happen, right? In the church where they're loving one another, they're giving things up sacrificially. When it became known to the church that somebody was in need, they jumped into action. And I love it how often I see that sort of thing happen here. There's a need comes, whether it's mowing grass or a fallen tree or um, or something around the church building or one of your needs being met. And as soon as we make that need known, man, people are jumping on it. It's happening. I praise God for it every time I hear about it. And that's what we see going on here. They got to work. Nobody was going to go to bed hungry in the church. Nobody was going to have to sleep out on the street because there weren't enough beds. They were going to make a bed. They were going to find room. This was the new normal for people who love Jesus. Now, it wouldn't always look exactly like this because God called them, Jesus through his call to them, told them to go out from there. But here's their home base and they're getting ready for this mission. So in this time, in this way, they were sacrificially loving one another in a sense that Jesus did and called them to. This was the new normal. And and this is a new normal for us because when we understand the beauty of grace when we understand the joy of reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ, the stuff of this earth just loses its importance, doesn't it? We sing a song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. You remember this. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's true. If we have eternity in view, if we have love for a brother and sister in view, I'm not going to value the things that I have here, the stuff that I have more than I should. The situation in the early church reminds us that physical possessions are important, right? God gave them means, God blessed people there so that they could then turn around and be a blessing to those who were in Jerusalem at the time. 
So physical things are important. They're just not more important than people. Our culture seems to have lost its way on some of that. Christians seem to maybe have lost their way in understanding that God often blesses so that we can then go and bless others. Now don't forget, call our minds back to what Jesus says yet again. The mission of the church is to take his love to those people outside of the church walls. That's still what our call is as believers. But you know what? If we're not meeting the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ along with that, then something's not firing on all cylinders. Something's still not quite right. It's gotten out of whack. The body is is unhealthy if we've got members who are suffering and we're just all blazing forward on some other thing. The author of Hebrews helps us in this. He says in chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, he says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's certainly more to being a church member than filling a seat on Sunday morning. But you can't build proper relationships in the body if you aren't with God's people. You understand what I mean? I'm not trying to guilt anyone. I'm just pointing out a fact. You can't love your brothers and sisters sacrificially the way that Jesus gave us the blueprint for if you are not with them, if you do not know them. And so that's why membership in at Ramsey Creek, at least, is important. It's because we love one another, because we're called to love one another. Day by day, it says in Acts chapter 2, Hebrews 10, he says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. It was the habit all the way back then. It's the habit still today. He says, don't neglect to do that, but instead encourage one another, especially as you see the day growing closer, drawing near. They were doing these things day by day. It says, look at verse 46. Verse 46 says that one of the things they were doing day by day was attending the temple together. They made it a point to get together to worship God. And the temple is one of those places that they did that. Now, the layout of Jerusalem and the sort of tight-knit quarters made it probably more logistically easy for the people here in this point, especially as opposed to like it would be for us geographically when we're coming from long time away. But it doesn't mean that we get a free pass here just because we have to drive a few minutes. Day by day, their normal lives were intertwined with each other. They worshiped together in the temple. They gathered together probably in their homes, to break bread. And as they did these things, what happened? As they did these things, it doesn't say that they grew resentful of one another. It doesn't say that they began to get jealous of one another. It doesn't say that they started to run out of things. What does it say? It says they were breaking bread together, verse 46. In their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That's what was going on. Glad and generous hearts. They were humble. As they did these things, gratefulness gushed out. The Christian Standard Bible says, 
they received their food with a joyful and humble attitude. They were grateful for whatever they had, and their, their hearts were glad and content. They took this attitude with them wherever they went, the temple being one of those places. Now, in the temple, where it says that they were often, you've got Jews who had just been converted to Christ, right? They see him as the fulfillment of the law. They're not bound by it anymore. But then in the temple, you've also got devout Jews who've not been converted to Christ. So you've got a a mingling, if you will, of still Jews, but some that have a much different outlook on life. And so you've got a group. Can you imagine this with me? You've got devout Jews who are trying to obey the law to the best of their ability, counting on that as, as their salvation to be right with God. And now you've got this group of, of, of people that's probably are excited. There's probably a hum coming from this group when they walk through the doors. And, and now you've got them and they're over here and they're, these, these other Jews might know some of them. Well now, now they're going to be watching, right? What are they doing? How, how are they sounding? What kinds of things are they being about now? And they see a change in their lives. They see this joy that maybe wasn't there before. They see this humble and grateful attitude. Even if they don't have much, they see this. It's just pouring over in the temple. And so you've got law-abiding Jews and born-again Jews all worshiping in the same place. And when the ones who come in with a joyful and generous and grateful and humble heart, it must have been pretty obvious what was going on. The unsaved Jews were witnessing men and women whose lives had been transformed by the gospel. And it had an impact. It had an effect. Look at verse 47. They were These Jews were praising God and having favor with all the people. Their, their attitudes, their praise had an effect. And it says the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The King James Version says that these believers dwelled together with gladness and singleness of heart. I like the way that that's put because it helps us see that they were, it, it's, it's not like they all looked the same or dressed the same, or could speak the same. They were all had different education levels. But when they came in, they were the same. They were all saved by grace through faith. And they were all in singleness of heart in this. They weren't, they weren't trying to be something that they weren't. Putting on airs, that's kind of a, a phrase you might be familiar with. They weren't trying to be something that they weren't. They were just themselves. They just loved Jesus. They just loved their brothers and their sisters. And they must have really understood what Jesus had done for them because it caused them to lift their voices in praise to God day by day, it says. And this joyful, generous, and grateful lifestyle positively affected those around them. It says that they had favor with everybody. Paul describes this sort of thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says that Christians are the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance from death to death. 
to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7 puts it this way. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. Now, unfortunately, if you know what's coming in the book of Acts, you know that this sentiment towards the earlier church wouldn't really last all that long because the religious authorities and those who are in the temple who didn't like what was going on began to resent to these Christians. And that resentment turned quickly into persecution for teaching about salvation in Jesus Christ. But here we've got these incredible things happening, and the effect of this early church's witness in their town was immediately impactful. Immediate results. Acts chapter 2 ends with Luke's explanation of who grows the church. The Lord was adding to the church day by day. This, this early church was so unified, so joyful, so generous and spirit-filled that their very existence was a powerful testimony to the power of the gospel, to what God does in a life. Many of G- these Jews in the temple believed Jesus had been crucified and died and he was a failure because he died, remember? Because champions, messiahs don't lose And they couldn't grasp it. They couldn't reconcile that. But the lifestyle of these Christians painted such a very different picture that they took notice. It had an impact. They'd been so radically changed that everyone could see something had happened in their lives. They weren't just going through the motions of the law anymore. Something happened in these Christians' lives that the law couldn't do by itself. The lifestyle and example of Christians showed that Jesus is alive. Their lifestyle, their example showed that he really raised from the dead. These signs of life in the Christian are evident to a watching world. Are you living this way? Are you living with joy and generosity? Or are you living with pessimism? And selfishness. Are you turning off the faucet of love to others? That kind of thing is not a true picture of what it means to walk with Jesus. So church, we are called to spur one another on to love and good works. Spur one another on. You guys understand where that phrasing comes from, right? It's, it's talking about horseback riding with spurs, which is, I don't understand is a pleasant thing for the, the horse, right? It gets their attention. It reminds them that they're not in charge. But for us in the church, we're supposed to, to spur one another on. Sometimes that could be a painful thing. But we're directing one another. We're, we're steering and loving one another to do what's right. This also reminds us that there is effort required to live the life of a Christian. Because if you just do what you would normally do, you're going to take the toy from the person that has it. You know what I'm saying? There's effort involved. Now, this effort doesn't justify us. It doesn't keep us saved. It doesn't keep us in God's good graces. But it is a definite fruit of a life that's been changed. And look at what God does through those kinds of lives. Verse 47, he says, the Lord added to their number 
day by day, those who are being saved. I'd venture to say that in this world, since the day of Pentecost, a day hasn't gone by when God hasn't added somebody to the church. Maybe not here, maybe not in Missouri, maybe not in the USA, but somewhere because the Spirit of God goes out. In fact, that's the only way that the church grows, isn't it? If the Lord does the adding. See, when, when we try to make it grow by tweaking the process or by changing the message, church attendance might increase. Appealing to the desires of the world can fill a building pretty easily. But as Psalm 127 puts it, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The love that these Christians had for one another compelled the people around them to hear the message of the gospel and believe because of their example. And the love that they had for one another gave them confidence to continue pressing further and further outward with the message of a risen Savior. It was a springboard for Christian mission. So in application and evaluation of our own hearts this morning, if you were to put your fingers on the spiritual wrist of your life, what would you feel? Is there a sign of life there? Do you feel a heartbeat? Is it strong? Is it steady or would it be irregular and thready? What would it be? If the Lord looked in to your heart, would he see a love for the brothers and sisters in the church? Would he see a joyful, grateful, humble, and content heart? Would he see the example of the church speaking life into a world around them? Maybe you put your fingers spiritually on there and you don't feel a heartbeat at all. Because you've not been made new. We'd love the chance to sit down and talk with you more about what it would look like to put your faith in Christ. To surrender to Him. To live your life for Him. Because Jesus is what unites us here. He's who unites us in every way. Faith in the risen Savior is why we get together Sunday in and Sunday out and a bunch of times in between. Because we're the church and we want to be the church that God has called us to and to do and to be. And his love for us compels us to love one another. And that love for one another in the church can't help but then spill over into the next town and the next town and the next state and the next country. And you guys see where this is going. This is the design of the gospel. You hear this incredible message that's almost unbelievable unbelievably good and you say that's for me i'll take it and then you take that same incredible message and you go to the next person so i mean i gotta tell you about this this is incredible and then as brock said in sunday school this morning that just keeps going that one disciple makes another and another and another to where many see the church and see it hopefully according to the plan of God, and see 
us encouraging one another and loving one another, maybe even sacrificing for one another all the more as we see the day approaching. So here's an encouragement as we close. If you feel overwhelmed with life, with whatever it is that you're experiencing today, I want you to come back and read these few verses, 42 through 47 of Acts chapter 2. Be reminded that if you are in Christ, there are brothers and sisters in this very church body, in this room today, who want to walk through this life with you together. Intertwined. Loving one another. Showing that obviously, not for our Not for our boasting, but so that we may boast in him. Let's pray. Father, Acts chapter 2 has been refreshing to my soul, and I thank you for it. I thank you that we get to see such obvious evidences of what the gospel does in a heart and life. It, It radically changes us. Just like it did Saul to Paul, Lord, we are are radically changed. Maybe not as obvious as him in that, but Lord, our desires change. Our nature changes. Our, Our hopes and dreams and cares all get aligned with your word and with your people. And so I I pray that that is exactly what's going on in hearts this morning. From, from the youngest to the oldest who's listening. Lord, that we might see the beauty of the church, Christ as the leader and the, the good chief shepherd, and that we might love one another deeply, sacrificially even, so that we have the confidence then to send people out to go, continue sharing the gospel message because it's the best thing we can give. Do a work in our hearts this morning, Lord, and if there are any who don't know you that are feeling this call to be saved, I pray that they would not wait, that they would come to the front today, that they would find a trusted Christian friend, and that they would talk with them about what it means to give their hearts to Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.